welcome to Life Beyond the Sirens podcast. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Stories and advice from frontline workers. Before we get to the episode, I just want to quickly get to our sponsors and then we'll go from there. Are you looking to get into the fire service but can't seem to crack the process? Are you looking for a company that can help you get the job and maintain the job at the highest level? Look no further than Firehouse Training. They cover all aspects of OFAI prep, resume building, and interview coaching. They also provide continuing education for everybody still on the job. Get in contact with Firehouse Training today and jumpstart your career into the fire service. All right, welcome back to Life Beyond the Sirens podcast. We're here with Michelle Smith, aka Sober Mom. She's the CEO and best-selling author of Recovery is a New Black. She is a certified alcohol and drug counselor. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this guys, we're kind of right into it, a little deep dive of what you're doing and you know, how you got into it. We read that you were working in a couple of jails for a while. Yes. Yeah, I started out my professional career after college at a crisis hotline. And I really got exposed to the houseless population, domestic violence, criminal justice system. And I fell in love with the criminal justice system. Go figure. I was raised where it was a very big household of giving back and service work. And the majority of my family were all doctors or they were, you know, firefighters. So that was always like a public service kind of work. And so I knew I was going to kind of go towards something in regards to that. But I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And so when I started getting more and more of the corrections population of people, I'm like, wow, I can help people, but it doesn't mean I have to do brain surgery. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't want to practice, you know, just serving people in that particular fashion. And I got recruited into a couple maximum security prisons and I opened up drug and alcohol programs and mental health programs for men and women that are in prison incarcerated. And The majority of all of them, you know, as we know, they get out and they become our neighbors. So I made it my mission to like really try to rehabilitate and transition them back into the community with as many tools and resources and education as possible, especially where they have their time down. So, you know, I I did that for a couple decades of multiple institutions and different levels and was a probation officer in between all of that for mental health court, drug court, and veterans court. And, you know, it really just, how I really got into the virtual space is within that period of time, I would say the last decade, I had a lot of really hard transitions in a short period of time. And what that looked like was, you know, climbing that corporate ladder and, you know, running these multiple dual treatment programs Working inside of a corrections facility or any public service work is really hard. It's draining. It's exhausting. It's all the things. I'm sure your listeners, you guys know how how demanding it can be. And the burnout rate is really high. And I think that there's this unwritten rule and this conversation that doesn't happen enough that I fell into, well, alcohol is going to make it better. It's going to numb things for a little while. And before I knew it, I started having strokes. I became a mom. I lost my mom at the same time. There was all these series of unfortunate events that took place and not to blame or excuse my behavior. I fell into a trap and it literally took me down faster than quicksand. And that is how I got into the space virtually of recovering out loud because there's too many professionals. There's too many people in general that are struggling with this and no one's talking about it because 
we're buried in shame and us that have credentials and license on the line, we're supposed to have this set this bar, but we're human, right? And this disease does not discriminate. And so I've made it my mission over the last probably four to five years of really just trying to normalize sobriety and just being clean and sober in our culture where it is normalized and glorified to drink excessively. And I want people to know that that doesn't have to be the way that we all do it. And we can really look at our relationship with alcohol at any stage. We don't have to wait until we're an alcoholic or we've hit this rock bottom in order to take a look at our relationship with alcohol. Mm -hmm. So how do you find that when a lot of people say they're stopped drinking for a while and they have like that peer pressure? Because that was a question we actually just asked each other. We wanted to ask you right away is what's how, what are some good tips you have for the, the stigma of, well, you know, having one drink is fine. Or if you don't want to drink that almost peer pressure to continue to drink at a social event, like university, for example, where yeah. Friday and Saturday is like a week long bender in two nights. Yeah. I think it really depends on where the person's at on their journey. A lot of people start out the way I did, where it was like, I, I feel like I'm forced to have to get sober and this does feel like a punishment and I do feel deprived. And I think, you know, that's a natural place to be. So having an accountability buddy or saying no so that you can say yes later and having alternatives on hand or going to an establishment where there are options to choose something other than liquor. But, you know, I think some really go-to lines that people use, including myself, is no thanks. Thanks for thinking of me, but I have my drink. Always having something in our hand so people don't have to offer us something, I think, is really, really important. Or, you know, I would say a lot of the times, oh, I brought, you know, a couple LaCroix because I have a presentation tomorrow. You know, thanks, but I'm good. I'm still hungover. Or, you know, whatever we need mm -hmm. to say. I think honesty is always the best policy, but I wasn't there yet. And, you know, now I can say I'm an alcoholic and you don't want to see me drink, you know? Right. Um, so I think our refusal skills kind of evolve as we evolve into this lifestyle that could potentially be alcohol free, that we just decide that this doesn't serve us anymore. And I don't feel good and no judgment on people who drink, but I don't, I don't need that. And I don't like the way it makes me feel and how I show up. So how you can respect that is by just ending the conversation and let's just keep going. You know, you have your drink, I have my drink, but we're here for a good time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I really like that one point that you made about just having something in your hand and whether even if you had a Yeti, like nobody knows what you're drinking. You don't have to publicize that you're not drinking or you are drinking, but yeah, if that's in your hand, people won't offer you a drink, yeah. which I think is great. I know a lot of, or a handful of emergency service workers that have went off and have went to rehab. Do you think it's because there's a lot of time off where we're sh shift working? It's because there's mental health things and that's how we're trying to cope. I think there's a combination of a lot of it. I think it's a high burnout rate working first responders, public service work. We see a lot of things that a lot of humans will never see in one year, like our year of their lifetime. You know, and I think it's really hard when I'm doing street work and, you know, there's this person passed out and I'm with the sheriff's office and this person's not going to go home to a bed like and I'm driving away in a, you know, a state trooper car going back to a California King bed like that's hard. It's hard to, you know, just kind of compartmentalize our lives when we see destruction and corruption. And it's such a small piece of the world. But when we work in, as a first responder, it's a lot of our world, right? And so we live in this 
this space that's just always just like that trauma constantly, the burnout. Um, you know, I think we work a lot of excessive hours. We're constantly on point. And where is our opportunity to decompress? And when we do have it, it's this cultural norm or this just like unwritten rule that we celebrate. And how do we celebrate? Well, with a barbecue and a six pack of beer, like every normal person, you know? And I think when we have these hardships, we just lean on this external solution to this internal problem just a little bit more. And that's how disease works. That's the progression. It doesn't happen overnight. And so it's sneaky. So I think that there's a lot of risk factors that we especially need to look for, um, how do we balance stress? How do we decompress? Do we just keep it locked inside when we've seen a horrific accident? Maybe we need to go see EAP services or go talk to a counselor or debrief with my supervisor or one of my teammates. You know, I think we just have this way of just, well, we have our thing, our vice that works, that kind of teleports us and recharges us because we deserve it, right? We tell ourselves it was a really hard day. It's a hundred degrees out. I deserve this drink. And so asking yourself, why am I drinking? What is this going to serve? How is this serving me? And what else could I do differently? Because I think a lot of time when we take a break from drinking, we're exposed to the opportunity that this is a lot harder than we expected it to be, even if we don't have a problematic relationship with it. And so you know, to come full circle and just answer that question, I think burnout is really big really looking at what other tools you do have that you can tap into and what other resources we do have at our fingertips might not be instant gratification, but it's not going to put us in a situation where we're going to be endangering public, our family, ourselves. Um, And conversations like this matter because we're not alone in this and we do really amazing work and it's really hard work at the same time. Right. What are some like signs and symptoms of somebody that, um, maybe like if I'm drinking so much, I don't know, like you said, it's a gradual slope down. So what are some signs and symptoms that I could be aware of for myself or loved ones? If like I said, my wife or my Mm -hmm. father or whoever, a friend, what should I be on the kind of lookout? I think, you know, looking to see if, if you could take a couple days off, like if this person's having to bring a cooler with them to the river, you know, or their their predominant place that they want to hang out is centered around alcohol or just saying one time, like, I don't have any, any, but what I do have is LaCroix or not even saying you don't have alcohol, just saying, Hey, I've got X, Y, and Z, which one would you prefer? And just seeing how they react to that. But I think for us and them, if you just put a break and see if they can like just stay abstinent for a day or two, or if they're starting to get super squirrely, that's a really good way to tell that, whoa, I need to take a look at this. Why was it so uncomfortable to go to this place and actually have a lemon water or a hot tea over my, you know, IPA, you know, what is that about and tapping into that and just getting curious. And I think self-awareness is a really big piece. Test yourself and see how you do, how you feel. Um, You know, and I think, too, when we see people that are starting to kind of have this habitual pattern of utilizing substances, usually what happens is when somebody that loves them, because we don't want to co-sign, right, to the self-destruction, they're going to be upset if they already know they have an issue or 
more of a dependence than they thought, they're going to be defensive and they're going to say, just mind your own business or, you know, you drink too or whatever. Um, But that's also an indication of potential denial because when people are starting to have a problematic relationship with alcohol, they don't show it necessarily on the outside. And so they start to get secretive with it. And so it gets harder to really see the patterns and the traits and the behavior um, because, you know, they can have a couple drinks at the party or the barbecue. And then when they go home, they'll usually grab a six pack and then we don't get to see what happens the rest of the night. So I think just being aware and just being mindful of the people that we love and when they go through really hard times or they're looking to celebrate, how are they doing that? And that, that gives you a lot of information right there. Do you feel like you should push the subject if someone is coming or you starting to go to them and say, I mean, you've had enough and they start to have that aggression pushing back towards you. Do you feel like this is something that's appropriate to continue to push and say, no, like we should look further into why you have to consistently drink or is it one of those, they need to kind of do it on themselves type of situations? I think there's a really fine line because people pushed me and I pushed back. I'm an adult. I'm responsible. It's legal. I'm not doing anything wrong. Mind your own business. Now, I, those are the first people I went back to and apologized and said, you loved me enough to not co-sign. And I think there's a fine line to walk, but what I do and what I think was beneficial in the people who did this to me is I've noticed this, this behavior. I know you're going through a really hard time, or I want you to know I'm always here for you and create a boundary. I and making a choice to not drink around you because I love you that much. I am always here to go do all of the things that we love to do as long as alcohol is not included. And so until you kind of sort that out, I'm going to love you from here to protect myself, but also to not enable your behavior that's becoming problematic, you know? So letting them know that you support them and you love them And just choosing not to consume around them is a huge, it's a huge support that they don't realize they have. And it's a boundary that you're creating that you're not co-signing, you know, and we have a friendship beyond the bottle. We really do. What are your thoughts, sorry, on uh, just like a non-alcoholic beer? Is that a good alternative? You know, it's a great question. It's a very controversial question in the space of recovery. I think, you know, Old timers or people that have been in the fellowship a long time because, you know, there was only the normie people who can drink and everybody's supposed to drink until they can't, right? Until they become an alcoholic and then they go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I think a lot of people that are in the 12-step programs, including myself, initially was non, non-alcoholic non drinks are for non-alcoholics. So why pretend to be drinking something and just the ritual and the habit of getting into So there is this team in this camp of people who are just like, I'm not going to pretend to drink when I can't drink or I die. There's this whole new, as you guys probably know, sober curious that we don't have to identify as in recovery or sober. We're just either sober curious or we're choosing to live an alcohol-free lifestyle for the health of it because we know what it does now as more research comes out. That movement and that group of people are very big on, I still enjoy the taste. I just don't want the health, the lack of health benefits that we thought it provided. And so I'm a person who enjoys them and I can do that six years into my recovery, but not everybody can. But the inflation and the amount of 
mocktails and just, you know, we started out with a Shirley Temple, you know, or like a juice box. I'm not a kid. I don't want water. I'm not a plant. Like I want something sophisticated and delicious, just like everybody else. And so the majority of people are on board and really enjoy having a nice drink. Others are really triggered by it. And it is very much a personal decision that each person has to make. Do you find that when it leads into other uh, substance abuses, when people are starting to go down that path of alcoholism? I do. Yeah, Yeah. I do. Um, And it did for me too. It was, you know, one back surgery after another, after injuries. And, you know, I popped, I got into the, the pills, you know, it didn't get super crazy, but they were abused. Um, and you know, it was mixing things, right. Alcohol with pills. It's like, wow, this is, this is different than I've ever experienced. And I don't have to worry And the noise quiets in my head, you know, until it doesn't. And it creates all these other problems, but it's very, very common for people, you know, to have a poly substance use disorder, which was multiple substances, um, either all at the same time, or when they can't get their hands on one and access one, they'll go to another, And I think that's just when it, it just spirals out of control and really starts to amp an addiction up when we're doing that. And especially now, as you guys, I'm sure know the fentanyl, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. insane what things are laced with and what people are capable of getting their hands on and people are dropping like flies. It's just, it's so devastating that our lives get so hard and overwhelming that we don't tap into the resources and the tools that we have because this thing over here is just so much more, it's just quicker. It's effective. It feels good. And, but it's not real as, as we know, it's not real. And eventually it takes us all down to the same spot. If we don't tap into it and keep it in check. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a really sad, it's a really hard disease too of addiction to really understand if people haven't gone through it or they don't have a loved one that's gone through it. I'm a professional and a textbook person. When I finally started to struggle, I had no freaking clue what it was like to struggle with this thing. This thing that hijacks you, that you do things that you never would have imagined in a million years you would do. It's like, you just don't get it until you're through it. And it's sad and it's sickening almost to like see what people are capable of doing. But I'm telling it out there, if you guys haven't tapped into drugs and alcohol or, you know, gotten to the point of abusing them, it's, it's very dangerous and deadly and it's just not worth it. And we need to constantly bring ourselves back to the things that do bring us joy, you know, whether that's hiking or meditating or biking or art or whatever. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's like, it's it's not going to give us that that high, that feel good, but it's going to bring somewhat of a significant joy to our life. And just to keep it as simple as possible, because the other stuff, it's like when you have to do minimal effort to, to get a lot of hit of dopamine, it's not real. You know, mm-hmm. it's not this drip that we just get and life's just hunky dory all the time, you know, and so just don't do it. Don't do drugs. <laughs> That's fair. Absolutely. <laughs> oh Absolutely. my gosh. Yes. Do you find that, is it worth people when you hear someone saying, I'm just going to go cold Turkey? Do you feel like that's something that is it just like a, a fad or is it like people actually can actually do it? Or is that just something you see in the movies and it's like, that's not actually real. And there's a lot more that goes into it. There 
there's both. There's both. I think there's a lot of like, yeah, the movies always, you know, like 12 steps and stuff. It's not even like it is in the movies there. It's changed so much. It's ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, I think I personally have done that cold Turkey, which I do not recommend anybody do, but there's again, this stigma that people don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to ask for help because that means their chart's going to be flagged. CPS child protective services might be notified, you know, and so they kind of avoid everything until they have to. And then they see that their blood, like their labs, their, their elevated levels on their blood work, you know, there, there has to be something to like prompt a need to change this behavior. Right. So a DUI or my partner's going to leave me, or, you know, my boss just caught me doing X, Y, and Z. And now I'm being reprimanded. Um, we have to wait for these quote unquote yets to happen in order to then pause and think about what we're doing, which is just reaction versus, you know, being proactive. Um, but it's dangerous and it's deadly to do cold turkey. So, you know, it happens. Yes. Do I recommend it? Absolutely not. That's why we have detox programs and, you know, doctors and emergency rooms and all of that, because the more, you know, dependent we get and the more tolerance increases, the more deadly it becomes where I'm the perfect example of four hospital admissions in with fatal alcohol poisoning. You know, it's like, that's just, you see that in the movies, not my life. Mm -hmm. Like how did that become my life? And so People do and people are fine with it, but their risk, especially the more dependent and the longer we've consumed, it's it causes more problems um, that could lead to death. So it's both. You find there's a lot of, and I'm not sure, I don't know if you help all ages, but you find there's a big difference between, not that we're old, we're, we're still, you know, we're in our early 30s, but like even the kids nowadays, like they're drinking at 14 and it seems to be like they're just... Not stopping. Do you find you're helping both? And if so, is there a big difference in why they've started and what's core the correlation could be? You know, I see more of when I go and talk to like the schools and the school age kids, I see more of like the cannabis, the vaping, the gummies, more of that than I do the drinking, which is like more in like our generation. I'm older than you guys, but like, you know, it was just it was a lot of alcohol and pot for us, but for these, this generation, I'm not seeing so much, including my kids, of having conversations around alcohol. And I think that, you know, there's a lot they're seeing from their parents of the disease of addiction that is very, it, it turns them off from wanting to drink, but it doesn't turn them off enough from trying a different substance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that with the sober curious movement and people don't like praying to the porcelain gods, they don't like barfing up, you know, and feeling like garbage. They just want some different kind of experience or high that comes from something other than alcohol. So I think more of like, you know, under like the probably 25 and up is more of the alcohol. I think the other ones are more of just hallucinogenics and, you know, pills and that kind of stuff, which is scary because this whole fentanyl business and, you know, getting Narcan in the hands of everybody everybody, every school, everybody needs this. And it, I'm seeing it by all the AED machines, which is amazing, you know, cause you can't kill mm. somebody, even if they're not ODing on, you know, an opiate or something, they still try to, you can save their life. You know, you can't kill them by giving it to them when they didn't need it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's a mod podge of drugs out there, but you know, I think everyone has a different reason for why they tap into what they tap into. 
do you find that they go from one substance to another? Like, have you, is it, I've read you deal with alcohol and drugs. So do you find that when certain people kick a certain substance, they'll push more towards like the psycho hallucinogens, like ayahuasca or the mushrooms, and then they kind of go to that addiction. There's, do you find a ways to kind of help go from one side to the other? Like there's got to be a healthy middle between going from, not to say both drugs are good, but going from the stuff that's man-made to more natural. And then people saying, well, this is natural, so this is fine. Right. I think people start out that way with like, they ha- they think that they have like a rhyme or reason that makes sense to why they're going for this first thing. Or maybe it's just accessible, you know, because somebody else they know offers it or they can get their hands on it. What I've experienced is that it becomes more of a convenience and something that is easier to access, to hide, to conceal, but also a lot of people end up getting it what was pharmaceutical than going to the streets because mm-hmm. it's cheaper. They ran out of options with doctors. I mean, I went for an example. I went from top shelf alcohol to literally all the way down to concealing it in wine bottles to like the boxed wine. So I don't know how much I'm pouring to then getting the, the airplane minis at the gas station to boxed. I mean, it just like went down as far as I could go. And a lot of people, including myself, are just, you know, Michelle, what's your drug of choice? I don't know. What do you got at that point? You know, and I, I didn't do anything else other than alcohol and pills, but a lot of people do. And mm-hmm. they get to the point where they don't even care. They just don't want to feel or they want to feel really good. That's the only reason we use drugs and alcohol is because we want to feel different, right? Or not feel at all. So mm-hmm. I think the progression goes more downhill to more convenience. The price needs to drop because my tolerance is increasing and I need more. And that's where we start to meet people, pick up charges, you know, potentially get laced with other things that are deadly. Um, So it's usually not going up to a higher class unless you're going from alcohol to a stimulant like cocaine, where people will then just want to do that. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I would say when it comes to like a downer or a depressant, they definitely go downhill pretty quick. First Response Coffee is a company where their mission is to provide the highest quality coffee to all frontline workers to ensure they operate at the highest level. Their beans are proudly roasted in Canada, where the portion of every bag being sold is donated to various agencies to help keep our first responders healthy throughout their careers and especially after their careers. Use code SIRENS15 to get 15% off your next order. If you guys are looking to increase your mood, your focus, reduce anxiety and stress, boost your immune system, increase your muscle recovery and longevity, as well as sleep better at night, Look no further than the cold protocol. Like, what was your rock bottom? Like, what was what really made you turn your life around? It's a great question. <laughs> One that I visit very often. You know, honestly, I know this sounds corny, but I don't think that there was a rock bottom. And like, there's like this elevator to like death and you get to decide when you get off. And some people get scared at a DUI. Like the, you hear like, what's it going to take for you to stop? Well, I haven't gotten a DUI yet. So it's like, oh gosh. Like, so that means that's the bar. So when you get a DUI, you'll stop because we won't, right? It, it's, it sounds insane. Like you will stop. But when you get to that point, it just keeps going and going and going. And you set new boundaries and limitations. And and that's where I was. You know, I'm never going to let this affect my job. I've worked too hard in my career. Like I'm educated. I'm a kind person. Like all the things that we tell ourselves, how in the heck did this ever become my thing? I teach this damn stuff. And, you know, that's kind of like how that spiral started for me. But like, I started having these rock bottoms. So I'd end up in the hospital, which I thought was a rock bottom because it's pure humiliation when your father was a physician and my 
team of addiction counselors are wrapped around me as my blood alcohol levels a 0.43 and I'm literally dying and half my body's in alcohol. It's like, you think that that would be your rock bottom, Michelle, that's pretty dang humiliating. And I'd like to say it was, and I never drank again, but that would be a lie. You know, it scared me. I really wanted to stop. And then child protective services came into my life. And, you know, so it was these series of unfortunate events that nothing significant like those things should have been where I surrendered and just said, okay, this thing isn't adding value to your life. Be done with it. Um, but after my fourth hospital stay, you know, I, I really feel like it was like mortality motivation. It sounds really weird, but my parents died at an, a young age and I know what it's like to be an adult orphan. And I was doing that to my kids. I was sitting there saying, this is not what I envisioned for my life or for my children. This is not serving anybody and I'm slowly killing myself and it's not fair. And so I have to get my crap together and figure out what is so wrong with your life, Michelle, that you have to escape it. You built this life. You love this life. What is wrong with you? And so I think that moment and that seed that was planted was big. But from the first time I walked into, let's say, Alcoholics Anonymous to walking out of inpatient treatment, like the messages were always the same. I was just ready to hear it. I was ready to say, you know what, I have to let go of this thing that doesn't want me, doesn't love me, but is taking me away from the people who do love me and really just swallowing my pride and saying that this disease does not discriminate. And I just, you know, made a handshake with the universe and said, there's this one thing, Michelle, you can't do. That one thing is drinking alcohol. That leaves endless possibilities of things you can do. So how are we going to get through this and figure this out? And that was just, I haven't looked back, you know, I'm not going to say that I don't get thirsty for things that I can't drink and that I would drink if I could drink like a normal quote unquote person, I would, but I can't. And I'm okay with, with that today. And my goal is to not drink again tomorrow. What are some of those things that you use to help you get through that time in your life? Like there's for, if you were quitting cigarettes, you would have nicotine gum or spray. Like what is, is there any options for alcohol? There is so many, so many. It's not just, okay, you wait until you're completely worthless and an alcoholic and lose your job. And then you go to treatment and AA for the rest of your life, right? Life sentence. Um, there's other options, right? So there's medical, you know, induced stuff. There's naltrexone that can help the anti-craving medication that you can, you can have. There's the mocktails, there's therapy, there's inpatient treatment program, there's IOP for intensive outpatient program. I started working with an addictions therapist and doing, you know, private therapy after to really start working on why were you drinking? We've got to get through bereavement. We have to figure out how we're going to not work as many hours at our job, even though they're dependent on us and we're on our second round of OT. I'm going to die if I sign up for that OT, right? So I've got to do this instead patchwork to recovery. There's celebrate recovery, refugee recovery, smart recovery. There's so many non 12 step, like, you know, religious groups these days too. And then there's those as well. So many options, Facebook groups, you know, I mean, there's sober vacations and retreats. People are really starting to drink, not drink for other reasons, other than they're in recovery or they're struggling with alcohol use disorder. So the slew of things to help people in their sober toolbox are endless. This podcast, somebody I know is going to hear something from our conversation today that's going to plant a seed either for them or somebody that they know that they love. We can listen to podcasts all day long and it 
while we're at the gym, we're stuck in traffic, we're waiting for our next call, right? And it's like, when you kind of start to plant awareness and seeds and you have a head full of sobriety, when we do drink, it it's different, right? We know that this causes cancer. You know, we know that it takes people that are, you know, high up there in the corporate ladder or who are famous. Like there's so many tools available now that there's no excuse for you not to feel like you don't have means I'm, I was privileged to be able to go to treatment. Not everybody can do that, but everybody has access to a free Instagram app that there's trillions of private groups out there for men, women, people that are professionals, the list goes on that if they know about those resources and can tap into it, it's the beginning of something that could change somebody's life. And so Google becomes everyone's best friend. You can Google like we do that are alcoholics. Like, am I an alcoholic? If you're not an alcoholic, you're not wondering if you have a problem with drinking. Right. And if you're Googling Mm -hmm. that, you freaking know the answer. Do you find that there isn't enough help publicly when people have kind of come to themselves? Like, you know what? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not apart from the typical Google search. Like, do you feel like there's not enough public help for people that they can see or like on a rent there's commercials about everything but you don't see commercials really about that unless you're looking for them true and they're there they are there um there's not as many but they're out there i mean they're already hitting you know the the what is it we just did the super bowl they, mm-hmm. they were in there you know i mean there's five stadiums professional like stadiums that now have all non-alcoholic beer i mean it's coming it's here it's just looking for it I think the message is still to a lot of people that live in society that you have to have a reason to start looking for it. And people aren't looking for the clues ahead of time by just simply saying, I'm about to go out and drink. Do I, when I go out to Mexican, do I need that Corona or that margarita? Or can I challenge myself to say no and see how that feels? Just like we do with like the whole 30 or going keto, like, just see how your body responds. But we don't think that we have to tap into that until we're overweight and we're, you know, getting ready for our next PT exam and we don't know how we're going to pass. You know, it's like we wait for something in order to tap into that. So it's definitely out there. Um, And I think the message needs to be louder about checking in with yourself earlier, right? Just to see how you're doing with this thing like they do with stepping on the scale and and checking your weight, your blood pressure. It's another form of your overall health and how are we going to optimize it? You know, Mm -hmm. but you got to be honest with yourself too, because a lot of us lie, you know, when we, you know, go into the doctor, how much do you drink? Oh, one or two, you know? Right. So it's, you got to be honest with yourself and you have to be willing to like actually be more self-aware Um, and then decide what you're going to do with that information. But, um, we have a long ways to go, but I think that in the last decade, especially coming out of this pandemic, it was just obscene amount of numbers that were just people are busting at the seams inpatient hospitals, you know, it, they couldn't get enough beds. It's just, they're maximized everywhere. And that tells you right there that we have a really big drinking problem in America. It's it's way out of control, and we need more support. It does amaze me every time, uh, you're, like you said, uh, going to the doctors and they ask you how much uh, alcohol intake you've had or something. It is probably a lot less than you think it is for like to be considered an alcoholic or to have an alcohol problem. Like right, 
it is. I mean, I think, I think the majority of all of us that drink are over drinking and it's just kind of like Pandora's box. It's just like at some point we we think that's never going to happen to us. I did. A lot of people I know thought that and eventually some really horrible things happened to us. Right. And if we don't have the right support and we're not in the right state of mind, we're capable of leaning towards that external solution just a little bit more than we ever had. Um, and it just kind of becomes us. And so we kind of lose that awareness piece because we're tapped into like, we don't feel it anymore, you know? And so we just go to protect it. And so the conversation definitely needs to get louder and louder, but again, it's, it's out there. It's just, we have to look for it. And once we're in it, it becomes almost saturated because we see it everywhere. Um, but yeah. What's some advice you have for someone who is currently in a state where they shouldn't be in and they feel like everyone is against them. I'm sure through your process probably and a lot of others, they feel like you're losing people and that you're alone. So what's, what's a good couple of pieces of advice you have for someone who's listening to this and it's like, okay, I kind of can relate, but I still feel like I'm alone or everyone's just lying to me. I don't have a problem. Right. Oh, that was me. Um, you know, I think what I did is I got sicker because isolation and secrets keep us sick. You know, it's like, oh, no accountability. I can do this a little bit more. And people have to have had enough or honestly, what it really comes down to. And I know people don't want to hear this, but the people who love a person who's struggling have to cut ties. And that can look financially. That can be like, pack your bag and leave me and the kids are staying or we're going because that prompts an immediate consequence that makes this person reflect in their life. I mean, my family picked up and left multiple times and I was sitting there alone and I was like, well, I already lost him. So I might as well just keep going now. Right. I mean, completely self-destructive, but you know, for me going back, yeah, I sat there in silence and I drank even harder, but eventually I knew my people were going to be out there. And so I started getting curious and saying, I can't be doing this alone, even though I'm not ready to go talk to my work because I need my job to provide for my family. And what are my, my coworkers going to think of me? You know, they're not going to trust me with their kids or trust me to save their life if we're in a burning building. I mean, come on. And so I think tapping into those free resources, knowing you can be a fly on the wall in a Facebook group and you can anonymously post if you want or just watch other people, because that's going to tell you that you're not alone in this and normal people such as you also struggle. And this is some tips and tools and resources of how they're navigating their relationship with alcohol. And so podcast groups, Instagram pod, like these podcasts are just the best. I believe there's quitlet books out there. There's a ton we can put in your guys's caption. If you want of some really good books and some, you know, resources, Mm -hmm. especially for professionals. But, you know, I think that there's just start to get curious, know that you're not alone, go and grab a book on recovery or, you know, sober curiosity and follow some accounts. That's a good place to start because it simply means I'm not alone. I'm still drinking, but I'm curious about learning more about how alcohol is affecting me and why I'm really drinking. Because once we start to have that awareness, we can make a choice. Are we going to try to figure this thing out or are we going to continue a little bit more self-destruction until we think we're ready? Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, starting small and just exposing yourself to you're not, an, not alone, I think is, is key. It really is. And then educating yourself on how this stuff really, really affects your brain health and your overall body because it's damaging and it literally destroys us from the inside out. 
do you feel like it's appropriate at the same time to kind of not be quiet and even going having those hard conversations with an employer with your family before it gets to that certain point and it may be different for everyone some people may not get to that point till much much later yeah. but if you already start to question do you feel like kind of people should get rid of their ego and understand that you may possibly have an effect on the job but have that conversation with your employer especially for first responders like if you feel like okay i'm getting too far do you think they should kind of like you go to your boss and say, look, there's something going on here and not think so much about the job, even though the job is a priority. You need, we all need financial stability, but is that something you could write? You would think should be done more often. I wish it was. And I think it would be if people felt that confidentiality would be safe. Um, you know, it is covered under FMLA. So technically this is a medical issue they don't need to know why, as long as the doctor signs off on it, they have approval to be able to be gone for medical end of story, you know, but people get so caught up into, am I going to lose my job? How am I going to be able to provide for my family that I don't want to let my coworkers down? They're already on their second round of overtime there. And, and the excuse that they don't want to stop, you know, there's so much that keeps people from doing that, including myself, where it had to be a stretcher of me literally drunk at work. Like it's sad to say, and it's humiliating, but I want people to know that this either happens to me too, or this can happen to you. And then you can lose your job altogether. Like the choice is yours, you know? And I think when people like, you know, you asked a question too, of how can we see warning signs? A really big one, I think in our space is when people call in sick, you know, it's like they're hungover or they don't feel good, or they literally know that they can't show up with alcohol in their breath because you know, their brothers and sisters are going to notice, you know, that's a huge warning sign right there. But I think other people going to the boss or the head lead or chief or whoever, and just saying, you know, I'm just, just a little bit worried. No, no, nothing on this person, but they've been missing some time. Could you check in with them? Not trying to start anything or, you know, whatever feels good to you. But I think it's just, we don't always have the best chain of command. And so that keeps us quiet even longer. Um, but I think that's where we have addiction awareness in the workplace. And we go around and talk about employee assistance programs and the, you know, how to avoid burnout and, you know, how to utilize other coping tools other than what we use, you know, those trainings and educations, I think are something we need to beef up in our space. Um, but I couldn't do it either. I couldn't go to my boss and say it. And I don't know, honestly, if it was pride, if it was financial, if it was a whole bunch of losing my license and my credentials, I think it was a mod podge of a lot of different things and it makes it sticky and it makes it, it makes it hard. Right. And so, um, I think just keeping an eye on each other and just knowing that we can celebrate and have things in common that don't always have to be centered around alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then when it's not, how do they react? they're not going to come or they're going to bring their own or they leave early, you know, um, there's always those warning signs when you're looking for it. But, you know, I think just education and open communication, I mean, we can't do more work than they're willing to do for themselves, but they know that they can tap into resources and that they are available when they're ready. Yeah. At what point do you cut yourself off from a family member? Cause I can only imagine that uh, that's so hard. Yeah. I don't think you have to, technically cut yourself off. I think it's creating boundaries and that is to not be codependent. That is to keep them safe and sane and not going down, you know, the bunny hole with this person that's struggling. And it's, I still love you, but I have to love you from here right now. And 
I want you to talk to somebody and get the support that you need. And I'm unwilling to be around you when you're drinking. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to drink around you. And that's my own boundary. And I'm choosing that. And I love you. And here's a resource for you. Or there's been friends where I've just sent them a podcast. I bet you there'll be somebody listening to this that will send this podcast to somebody they know. Leave a, a book on someone's coffee table or leave it in the chow hall or in the break room or accidentally drop it in someone's locker. I don't know. You know, the possibilities are endless. Um, but you know, we have dry July coming up. Mm-hmm. If one of you guys were like, Hey, I'm going to kick booze for, you know, 31 days. Who's with me. Let's do this as a challenge in our squad, our team and create an opportunity for you guys to do something different. So those are some fun ways to like, just bring it in. And I think when there's always those fads of sober October or dry January, it's always fun. And people, especially employers for look for that opportunity, like they do like the biggest loser, you know, Mm -hmm. like make it fun. Um, And, you know, so there's, there's, there's those ways, but, you know, podcasts and books and, you know, team building and challenges are, are always fun ways to just kind of dip your toes in without saying I have a problem and without having to be so entrenched in a disease that you, you need more help than that. So that would, that would be my answer. Do you feel like the aspect of an addictive personality, is that a legitimate thing that you feel? I know we're not all doctors here, but I guess that's something that you feel like, well, I have an addictive personality, so I'm going to do X, Y, Z more than the average Joe without that quote unquote addictive personality. I think that there's, yeah, I think that genetics plays a role into it because, you know, I had a predisposition to alcoholism my entire life, but I just said, you know what, I have the perfect example of what not to be. So I chose not to drink. And when I decided, I'm like, oh, I'm 30, I can do this. Like if it would have happened, it already would have happened. And it was like poking the bear. It was in hibernation and I fed it and it's freaking starving. And that was kind of how it worked for me. But I know that some people really just struggle with addiction because there's an absence or a void in their life. So whether it's a a, a man or a woman or, you know, people have to like, get rid of their Amazon apps on their phone because they're addicted to online shopping. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's, I mean, it's crazy. Some of the things that we get caught up into that we don't think about outside of drugs and alcohol. Um, so it's just, it's, it's baffling the things that we're, we're capable of gravitating towards, but I feel like we're, we're looking to fill a void of some type. And I think that that's a really good kind of warning sign and red flag for people too, when you're identifying is, oh my gosh, this person just lost their father. This father was everything to him. He was Mm -hmm. a firefighter and his father was a firefighter, right? How are we going to support this person and love him through a really hard time? You know what they did for me? They brought me booze after booze after booze. You just lost your mom. You're grieving. Drink. No, I did. And I drank myself to oblivion. But it's like, what would you do? Because nothing's going to bring this person back. So I'm going to live a lifestyle they would be proud of. And so if I'm grieving, how can I do that? I'm going to take you fishing to the same fishing hole your dad did, or I'm going to, you know, leave a Bible scripture. I don't know anything. There's ways to help support people without co-signing and giving somebody something that's addictive when they're at their lowest point in their life, because they honestly, it sucks to say this. They have to feel like garbage. They have to grieve and they have to mourn in order to heal, to work through it. 
Because if you don't, you're going to end up like me. And it's like, I'm just going to drink myself to death. And then it's just like a bandaid to a bullet hole. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That was going to be my next question too. Do you feel like that people need to embrace that really for lack of a better word, shitty feeling of someone passing away or going through that? Do you feel like that's something that people need to really hear and, and do more of if something happens, don't, don't drown, uh, the feelings, whether it be substance or alcohol, like people need to really embrace that, that sad emotion more. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Just, you know, I haven't lost somebody, you know, I, I don't want to, it feels like, I just want you to know that I'm here for you. If there's anything you can think of that I can support you and your family, consider it done. Ask them what they need. And even when they're struggling with addiction, either, or ask them, they're not going to know most likely. And so what I would eventually say is I don't know what I need. I don't even know how to help me, but when I figure it out, I'm going to let you know. And that shows somebody that you care enough to just say, I can't relate dude, but we're here for you. Mm-hmm. Here for you. Let me know hot meal, consider it done. Like whatever. Um, it goes a long way to somebody who's, who's dealing with bereavement or, you know, addiction, anything, you know, it's funny when you think of like, you don't think about things until, somebody says them. And it's like an example of grieving and gifting gifts, right? It's like when I became a mom, the first thing that everyone told me is welcome to motherhood. It's really hard and drinking helps. Eight bottles of alcohol was brought to the hospital, right? Didn't open them or anything, but it's like, nobody wants to hold the mom, just the baby. Right. And it's like, Oh, a shower would be cool, but people just want to bring over wine. And It's like, why are we gifting alcohol? Why is that? It's an exchange of social currency. Another example is when somebody moves into our house, we have a new neighbor. We bring them a bottle of wine, right? Mm -hmm. It's like when we go to a barbecue or a two-year-old's birthday, we, it's a, it's a staple for alcohol, just like it is cupcakes and balloons. I mean, who's going to go to a father's day barbecue and not think there's not going to be a keg or beer there, right? It's yeah. like we we gift Christmas baskets with a bottle of champagne around fruit. Like it's everywhere. That's how we're gifting everything. No no reason. I mean, it makes perfect sense of why we're struggling with this huge crisis and epidemic of alcohol use disorder in our country. I mean, it's just everyone does it until you can't do it anymore. So why why do you think that is? Why do you think it's a recurring thing where the go-to thing is to bring alcohol? Is it just something the the society is very it's just an easy thing to do instead of actually putting thought into a gift or even like a, a visa gift card? Like what do you think the reason is for just simply here's a bottle of wine? You know, I think it's just something that we've always done. And I I know today if we were to introduce alcohol into this world, it wouldn't be legalized. It wouldn't. And I think it's just we're all overwhelmed, stretched thin, exhausted, depleted, all of the things. And we just want to feel good with minimal effort. And this does it. And marketing, big alcohol is a freaking genius for preying on people and vulnerabilities, especially women. Holidays, it's Hallmark. They have Father's Day. They have they know exactly what fifths to have at the front of Costco. You know, when they, you know, Christmas time, it's like the marketing it's shoved down your throat that this is glorified. It's glitz and glamour. It's all about, you know, it's all sexy. It's all of this stuff. But then we stop and we don't roll the B footage on wrapping ourselves around a telephone pole or barfing on our mom's new rug. You know, it, it never mm. ends up the way that the movies and marketing wants it and shows it. And so if people don't want FOMO, they think if this is the thing and this is the thing that like, 
you know, breaks up our, like our social anxiety, it's like, they're going to do it. But the thing is, is if I am so anxious to go to this barbecue or my partner's holiday event that I have to get intoxicated because I'm so anxious, I shouldn't go. Right. Because I think they'd be more mad at me if I was dancing on the tables and breaking stuff than they would be if I just said no. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we have to start normalizing other things can be here just as much, but this is the thing America goes to because it's convenient. It's legal. Um, and we overcommit we're overworked and we don't want to say no. We want to people, please. We want the money. We're money driven. We don't like to set boundaries. And if we do, we don't maintain the boundaries. It's just like, once they're crossed, just kidding. Don't do it again. They're going to do it again. Right. Mm -hmm. So Making it less significant in your life, I think, is a key thing to keep in mind is that, you know, even if I'm not ready to give up alcohol or I don't think it's problematic at this point, I just want to be mindful, be self-aware, challenge myself from time to time, and just truly try to make alcohol or any vice less significant in my life. And you do that by just choosing to swap out the beverage you have in your hand every so often and identify when I do have a new neighbor or somebody does pass away or has a new child, how am I going to honor that? And how am I going to be able to gift them something that is more beneficial to their family, their overall health? Because literally what we're saying is, is here you go. Here's a bottle of poison. I poured this into my gas tank. Congratulations. I mean, literally, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, just it's like it, with everything, with everything coming down the pipelines from where, you know, health and wellness and everything that's going on. Are you, do you think we're going to hit a point uh, in North America where you're going to see the labels on liquor saying, this is what this can do kind of like what happened with the cigarette companies? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because it's already happening, which oh, is really, okay. really cool. Yeah. I did my Ted talk on this recently during the pandemic of, you know, the world health organization. So The WHO and the American Cancer Association, both of them have come out and said, no amount of alcohol is good for us. Risk starts at the first drop, right? So we're not drinking for the health of it anymore because we want our antioxidants. Mm -hmm. I literally will throw blueberries and chocolate at people and say, if you want your damn antioxidants, here you go. Stop using wine as an excuse to be healthy, right? Or it's good for my heart. It's not. And they're saying this now. It's not going to stop people, right? The cigarettes don't stop people. But all of the signs have said, you know, could, could you know, whatever risk of pregnant women or don't operate machinery, some jargon bullcrap, right? Mm-hmm. Very generic because they feel like they have to do that. That's their kind gesture. Um, but there is more labeling requirements coming and you are seeing a lot of more signs again, be more aware of it. And you'll notice it. I just went to Palm Springs and I saw it twice and it now says that, that it cause it may cause the risk of seven types of cancer, which is true. It's doing that. And so they're extending their labels and they're adding it to more than just drink responsibly, whatever the hell that means. Right. Right. Because once you decide to take that first drink, you're not operating with the same machinery in your brain that you were to make those same decisions you promised yourself before drink one. Mm -hmm. So um, the labeling, I think, is going to help people. But I, you know, I think that general practitioners and our doctors really need to step up and ask the right questions, too, especially when they know what kind of jobs we have and the burnout rate and 
you know, it's just, we're kind of like an assembly line and there's so many of us and not enough of them. They're overwhelmed and burned out. There are plenty of my clients as well. This again happens, right? I mean, mm -hmm. even dietitians are overweight and doctors smoke and they tell people not to smoke. It's just like, it is what it is. So, um, I think the person who's struggling or the person who needs more self-awareness as many ways as they can hear a message by just the, the primary doctor checking in and saying, you know, how much are you drinking? Or, you know, how's your dad? Oh, he passed away. Well, how do you need a bereavement pamphlet? Like, how are you doing with that? How are you taking care of yourself? Just more people asking questions, you know, and we spend the majority of our time with our coworkers. Are we checking in? Are we asking about grandma Nelson and how your little kids doing? And, you know, we just don't take the time because we just, it's not that we don't want to hear it. It's we either don't think about it or we just expect everything's great until it's not, or we're just right. so busy, you know, life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you find that, uh, heritage has anything to do with it in terms of like my, for myself, like Italian heritage, like we have a little bit of wine at, I don't know, six, seven years old <laughs> at yeah. the dinner table, but I'm not like, I can go five months without having a drink. So do you feel like there are people that blame their heritage or it turns into, well, I've been doing this since it was this age. What's the difference now? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a lot of that that plays into factor, you know, with people either staying away from it, people drinking earlier, or people really understanding the purpose behind alcohol or that beverage. Like it's, I feel that it's exposed to us as a tool, a coping tool when life gets really hard. This is how we have fun. We drink, we do beer pong, we do keg stands. Like it's just something that's incorporated in our social life. So we're mm. taught and it's, it's introduced to us as excessive binge drinking. That is to let your hair down, have fun, lighten up. You only live once. That's how it's introduced. So it's going to be taught to us to drink excessively and to drink because we want to have fun. And then we realize when we're not drinking, we don't know how to have fun. Right. right. Or when I stopped going and seeing, like stop walking into rooms where I didn't want to walk into them. Well, you have social anxiety or else you just don't like those damn people. And the only way you can deal with them is by getting drunk because you promised your partner you'd go, you right. know, it's like, you got to reel yourself back in. And so, you know, I think excessive drinking is, is shown how that's the way to do it. And so that's the way it's done when there's more of a, this is a delicacy and we harvest grapes and this is a family tradition. I think that they're not to say they're not susceptible to, you know, having a full blown substance use disorder, mm -hmm. but it's introduced to them in a different way. It's like food is fuel. You eat it to move your body, not to gorge right. on Twinkies. Right. So it's like, I think it has a lot to do with how it's introduced and how it's taught and the learning and the lesson of how, I, why am I doing this and what does this do to my body? So I think it does play, play a piece in it for sure. Proper um, education. Yeah. What yeah. are, what are some good ways to educate young people? Cause I know like when I was younger, I'm sure I got drunk for the first time and then I threw up and they're like, okay, well, that's what it feels like to be drunk. Maybe you won't do it again. Right. Yeah. I remember like trying to sneak a cigarette camping one time and my <laughs> uncle caught me and he's like, he made me put three in my mouth and cause he intentionally wanted me to like get sick. I've never one time only, and I've never touched that garbage ever again. So it's like, I know I'm thinking about that. I'm like, my kids get older. Should I just like have them sit there with like a Boons or a mad dog. I don't even know if they have those anymore. I'm aging myself, but whatever liquor they use and like chug it all, get sick and get it out of your system. I wouldn't do it, but I feel like it. 
Um, but now I'm forgetting the question because I just went on a tangent. I'm just trying to think of a way that would be a good way to introduce your kids to how bad alcohol and drugs really are. Right, right. I think it's good to know that they're going to experiment and they're going to go through it. It doesn't mean we have to sit there and watch them do it or be there with them, although that is a way. I think there's a lot going into the schools now. And they at 13, at least in our state, our kids take care of and they make decisions for their own medical benefits now. Like they get to make their own decisions, which wow. Like on their own That's- without without parent consent. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's wow. insanity. Um, but my daughter, no, you're signing that before you walk in. Like that's, it's not an option in our household. So, you know, but they can make their own decisions, but the doctors are talking to them, the school psychologists, they're having education come into the schools, especially because of COVID and suicides up and, you know, and those kind of aged kids that the conversations are happening and they just need to continue to happen. But I think the big thing is, is really trying to get to the kiddos of like identifying when the opportunity to expose them or introduce them to drugs and alcohol when they're most susceptible, because I educate my kids. I I don't, I'm not dumb. They're going to experiment and they're going to try this at some point in their life. But I tell them this is awkward. They're weird conversations. Let's get it done. And let's have it. So we have open dialogue. It's as uncomfortable for both of us, but I want you to understand a few things. One of them is that there's a series of alcoholism that runs in our family and you're not going to be immune to this. And so I want you to know the risks that are going to happen, but I also want her to know and him to know the, the opportunities of what that would look like, where it can be introduced in their life. Right. So Mm -hmm. education and role models, and maybe that's a counselor, you know, maybe that's, a child protective services worker, maybe it's somebody other than their parent, but education on how this really affects you because you can't forget that. Just like we can't forget, you could potentially cause damage to your child if you're pregnant and you drink, right? The fascinating thing with this is, is I work with so many women postpartum and it breaks my heart. And this was me included is that I can maintain sobriety for nine months while I'm caring for somebody other than myself. The moment I give birth, I don't matter anymore. I I resume drinking because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not hurting that, that baby, but I don't care or love myself enough that it doesn't matter about me anymore. Right. And it breaks my heart. And I was like that with the second pregnancy where it was like, okay, well, they're okay. Thank God. Well, why are they more important than your overall health? Because if you're not healthy, you're not going to be there for them. You can't raise them. You can't teach them. You can't role model for them. And so self-love and self-compassion and self-awareness go a really freaking long way, but we know how to pick ourselves apart really easy. Right. And so, you know, those are just, those are just a few ways to just be aware and have the conversation and keep educating, keep having those, those talks is, is really all we can do. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that the prevention, you know, is, is the cure, you know, we, we have to be more proactive than we are reactive, but people are so ignorant and in denial to the possibility of something bad happening to them because they're immune and they're different because of their father or their money or higher education or that they weren't abused as a child. None of that matters. None of it matters. 
do you just before we wrap up but you're you've been sober for i think you said four or five years now do you continue to do those the 12 steps the the sober living um all the things you did day one do you feel like do you need to continue to do it and if someone does say okay i've had enough is that like a sign of them you know someone to step in and say no you need to continue what you're doing right yeah um six and a half years by the way six and a half well, congratulations amazing <laughs> it's so funny i had to say that because my doctor will be like okay so how many days now because he never knew until i ended up in the emergency room and now i'm like write that in my file like write that and he's like where's your chip at and i'll show him my chip and i'm like i'm <laughs> i'm proud like i am pull me over give me a breathalyzer test trooper mm. i dare you like please do it um and then before when I'd see like, you know, a bike rack on someone's car, I thought it was a freaking trooper after my ass. But right. um, so let's see. Remind me what the question was again. If you get to a point where you feel like the steps you're doing to maintain and, well, yeah. and become sober is something where it's okay. I'm sober yeah. now. I don't need to continue the 12 steps, the sober living, cutting people out of your life. Like I'm good to go now. Is that a sign where you need to yourself need to say, okay, you need to continue this or for someone out external to say, no, you need to continue what you're doing. Right. I think that through our journey, it, it definitely does ebb and flow. I think somebody who has fallen into addiction really hard, doesn't, doesn't have the option to be alcohol free, trendy. I'm doing this for the health of it. You have to abstain, which means sober, but in order to have long-term success at sobriety, you have to work a program of recovery. And I think that it can look different. It is not the same way it looked for me, which was therapy, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, no non-alcoholic drinks, saying no to all invites and not being able to go anywhere. That's what it looked like in the beginning for me. And that was successful. And then I just drowned myself in books and knowledge and people's memoirs and everything that was reminding me that I'm not alone. Um, was important. And I think that through our, through our journey, there's going to be different hardships and different transitions. And we have to, again, be self-aware and tap into that. And so it might be heavier on bereavement, or I might go to virtual recovery meetings, you know, or I might stop the meetings because I have a community and I have people who love me and my house is declared alcohol free, where I'm going to focus more on you know, individual therapy to kind of work through some partner stuff or my kids. So patchwork to recovery can look different, but I truly personally believe and professionally believe you have to be doing something at all time. And when we start to let our guard down and say, we've got this danger is freaking ahead. I, I did that so many times where I got this. It's good. Moderation can come back into my life or not. I'm going to stay sober, but I don't need to be reminded about alcohol-free living anymore. And mm. yeah, I do. And yeah, everybody who has been in addiction recovery needs to be reminded at all times. And this isn't a punishment. This is a part of your life. And it's, it's a part of your, your health plan, right? It's a part of your wellness that needs to have this maintenance, just like we do for our car. Once we buy it, it's not the end of the deal, right? By far. Right. And it's not like that for recovery. And I think that we don't get to walk in like a chemo patient does. Like when I had cancer, like you don't just go in and you get somebody else gives you your medicine and you're better. I have to wake up every day in a boozy culture fighting to keep my 24 hours when it's offered to me in a million different places. And I have to do the legwork to take my medicine. It's mm -hmm. not given to me through an IV. Right. And when I started to see that in that way of how hard it is, 
But don't be discouraged by that because then it's just the maintenance of doing this and having this as a reminder that you're powerful and you're grateful. It gets easier. Um, and it just becomes a lifestyle. It just becomes this thing that we do just like we're non-drinkers, non-smokers, and I'm a non-meat eater. I have right. a whole bunch of non-things that make me me. You're not not inviting me to a birthday party because I need a gluten-free cupcake. I'm still being included. Alcohol should be no different. And the more right. we tell people that we're just not even in recovery, we're just a non-drinker, they can support us, right? And so absolutely 100% at all times, we need to be doing something to maintain our state of mind and our sobriety. It can just look different at different times. Right. Right. This is fantastic. This is great. There are a lot of amazing things. And thank you again for, for sharing your story and all the advice. This was to hopefully someone hearing this gets, gets a peace of mind and learn something from this for sure. Yeah. Is there a way that uh, people can get a hold of you uh, on Instagram? Yeah. So my handle is recovery is the new black and that's my website. It's Facebook, all the social media platforms. Um, you know, I've written a couple books you guys can find on Amazon and my TEDx talk is linked to all of that stuff as well. And, you know, we're just, I'm just going to keep doing recovering out loud and just letting people know that they're not alone. You know, there's just too many people dying for me to stay silent. So Absolutely. the more, the more I talk about it, the more my, my platform is able to reach more people. And it's my responsibility to be visible to people who need to hear this because I wanted this and I, I couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, start small, don't overwhelm yourself. I, I truly hope that, you know, who's ever listening has gotten something from our conversation to know that, there can be next steps and we can be curious and not make a big deal about it. And there's ways that we can support loved ones and continue to live a life that we love, that we're proud of. And alcohol doesn't have to be a part of everyone's life. And we can learn to accept that. And we can learn to support and honor people who choose not to drink and they're out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. So I appreciate you guys and all the work that you guys do and just creating the opportunity for this conversation to be happy. To, to happen because it's it's really freaking important absolutely well thank you for coming on and sharing everything this is fantastic